Well, hello there, IR theory friends, and welcome to another episode of Fully Automated and Occupy IR Theory podcast. This episode continues a short series of podcasts on the place of Marxism in international relations. Last episode, we had Bryant Skoulis of Florida International University discussing his piece, Marx in Miami, uh, Reflections on Teaching and the Confrontation with Ideology, a piece that he co-authored with Sean Walsh of Capital University. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, check it out. We got into some great discussion about various techniques and exercises that allow us to use Marx in the classroom and create space in students' minds for thinking about the historically situated nature of human consciousness. And I think what we took away from the conversation, Bryant and I, was simply this idea that maybe students aren't going to buy into Marxism as a political program overnight, uh, but there's a really worthwhile payoff if instructors are willing to take the time to model for students how Marxism can help us think uh, historically about who we are Uh, Where do our ideas come from? What is subjectivity? Marx is a great thinker on all of these subjects. Now, as a follow-up to last week's episode, this week, uh, we are joined by Sebastian Slavsky and Kevin Funk, who have a piece in the latest issue of International Studies Perspectives, entitled The Spectre That Haunts Political Science, The Neglect and Misreading of Marx in International Relations and Comparative Politics. If last week's episode was about the opportunities that Marxism offers in the classroom, uh, this week's episode is much more to do with the overall state of Marxism in political science these days. And the story, or the situation at least, is not that great. So let me tell you a little bit about our guests for this week. Sebastian Slavsky is a PhD candidate in the Political Science Department and Center for Latin American Studies at the University of Florida. His research focuses on the politics of criminal justice and urban policing, looking primarily at South Los Angeles and Sao Paulo. He examines how negative encounters with the police shape residents' racial identities, their use of space, and also an abiding sense of second-class citizenship. Kevin Funk, for his part, is assistant professor in the Department of Political Science and Law and director of international studies at Spring Hill College in Mobile, Alabama. And his main research focus right now is on the globalizing discourses of transnational corporations and their promotion and the emergence of micro-level zones of global urban capital, such as the San Hatton neighborhood in Santiago, Chile. Now, um, I think one of the really interesting things about the interview you're going to hear is not just the detail with which the authors are able to account for um, the current state of Marxism in the United States of America, but the way they introduce um, an interesting explanation of why this decline is happening and what we might be able to do about it. They're not just interested in the usual suspects here. Uh, This is not just an account of the expanse of conservative ideology or neoliberalism on the university campus, although those are no doubt factors to consider. But also the left itself uh, gets examined here. 
and it's basically this idea that the um, sort of postmodern or identity-based left has been very successful in the university and has perhaps displaced some traditional um, material Marxist concerns. So I think this is going to be a pretty provocative discussion, uh, but it's also a discussion that I think is due in international relations. And it will be really interesting to see how this discussion gets taken up in the discipline. Uh, where do we go from here? Are there strategies we can adopt in the classroom and in our publishing that are going to help us get beyond um, some of these issues? So um, Sebastian and Kevin have some suggestions there. Um, as ever, I'd be really interested in your feedback. You can reach out to us on Twitter at OccupyIRTheory. Right, enough from me. Let's get on with the show. So welcome, uh, Sebastian. Welcome, Kevin. Thanks for joining me on the show today. I'm super excited to talk about your piece because I think it's one of those uh, kind of state of the discipline kind of pieces that uh, you don't get to see so very often in our field. And I'm really interested in talking with you about where you're coming from with this, what inspired you to to write it. And, um, and also, if you want to tell me a little bit about the reaction to it. But I suppose my first question is, um, it seems maybe to someone outside the discipline that it, uh, it, it might be strange to hear an argument that uh, Marxism was not doing well in higher education today and specifically in the study of international relations. I mean, specifically uh, in the media and in the popular narrative, I think after 2008, there was this sense that Marx was on the return, right? The, the, we had these uh, figures being released by German publishers about the sales of Das Kapital going through the roof. Uh, we had the German finance minister saying, you know, Marx's perspective on the world might not be irrelevant. Uh, we had um, people like Terry Eagleton producing books, Why Marx Was Right. Leo Panitch had a spot in the vaunted foreign policy magazine. Of course, then we had the Occupy movement itself. So, to borrow a phrase, the Overton window seemed like it might have shifted a little bit, and uh, and and uh, you know Marxism was back again. So, uh, what's going on in your piece? Why do you think? Uh, well, first of all, can you give us a brief description of of the state of Marxism in international relations today, and then maybe just talk us through why there's this disconnect between um, what's going on in academia and this sort of wider return of Marx that may or may not be going on. Sure, and, and thank you for having us. We're excited to, to talk about the piece and the issues that, that are under consideration here. I, I should say, to go back to the original premise of your question, mm. that there did in, indeed seem to be a political opening in the wake of the financial crisis in particular, and then with Occupy, as you mentioned, different global movements, student protests in different places, the Bernie Sanders campaign, and so forth. I think that's a very real phenomenon. And in fact, it's it's been seen in certain academic disciplines, like economics, uh, where there's a movement based at the University of Manchester, there are different sorts of movements calling for greater pluralism in the field, students organizing for the curriculum to be changed so that different sorts of voices are included, not only Marx, but including Marx, certainly. And the fact that that sort of movement has not ar arisen in as significant of a way, I think, is a testament to just how stated the waters are in political science. Mm. So even a field like economics, I don't want to say that it's been fundamentally reconfigured along more pluralistic lines, but again, there's been a bit more tumult in terms of efforts to seek to diversify who's being read. Uh, you know, political science lags behind, it seems, even economics in that regard. 
So there has been, once again, a, a certain opening, which we're trying to now push political science in the direction of, of thinking about. And so aside from the immediate purpose of the article, which is, as, as we'll explain, to look at what's being taught and kind of the state of the discipline and, and the state of the art in the discipline, there's also a political project here, of course, in order to try to open some space in terms of what gets read in, in political science. Um, um. So again, thank you for, for having us here. Uh, and just adding to what just Kevin said uh, recently, um, I think that um, the fact that in, in, in the more general audience, uh, the more activist, politically active uh, audience, Marx made a return, or at least the, the, the sense of that Marx had something to say about the situation, the political situation of, of the world. Um, when you confront that with the, the situation that goes on in academia, um, make things even more worrisome um, mm. in the sense that uh, it seems to be, at least in the U.S. academia, a certain disconnection between what goes on in the real world, uh, in the real world of politics and what goes on behind the walls of academia. Um, and that's also part of our, our concern, our feeling uh, while doing our Ph.D. program um, here and, and, and engaging with mm. a wider scholarship. Um, of, of international relations and political science in general, uh, the fact that uh, naming Marx or talking about Marx or, or any of his concepts was seen as something completely out of the place or, or out of the way, um, while at the same time you see all these movements that are um, that are bringing Marx back. So that's right. other things that are that um, lead, led us to to try to systematically analyze or empirically analyze, well, okay, let's see how, what, what's the situation here. And I should say that when we embarked on this analysis, which focused on acquiring syllabi for introductory graduate seminars in international relations and, and comparative politics in the departments that are ranked in the top 10, according to the U.S. News and World Report, we naturally expected, of course, that Marx and Marxist authors were not going to be widely read. But the extent to which we found that you know, Marx and Marxist authors were actually were not being read surprised even us. And so we, we have tables listed with the figures in, in the article itself, but, but just to, to give a brief flavor of that. So we looked at approximately, again, the top 10 departments, introductory graduate seminars in both international relations and comparative politics. We only found one such syllabi, such syllabus rather, that had Marx as a required reading. Um, and that was the Communist Manifesto in a, in a comparative mm -hmm. politics class. We broadened our horizons. Uh, and so, and so once, once you break that down and, and look at the total number of readings um, from all of these syllabi, we looked at both the required readings and then many of them include suggested or recommended readings as well. That adds up to 1,700 uh, 1,490 required readings mm -hmm. and 1,760 recommended readings. And out of all of those, then, there is exactly one required reading and one suggested reading. Wow. And so I, I think that really immediately gets to the, to the crux of the matter. Uh, we identified particularly jarring situations. So, mm. for example, there's, an there's a particular graduate seminar, I believe it's in comparative politics, where there's an entire week focusing on class. Yeah. So this is the topic of the week's seminar. And there's no reading of Marx in that particular seminar. Uh, we find classes where there's an entire week focusing on structure, for example. And so 
And even in that context, Marx is not assigned. And that's especially ironic because Marx is, of course, so often criticized for being an overly structural thinker by people who don't necessarily engage in a very nuanced reading of him. Also, if on the one hand, he's being criticized for being overly structural, you would think that they would at least read him when they're talking about structure. But we find that not to be the case also. So so again, we were not expecting to find an avalanche of, of Marx uh, and Marxist readings being assigned in classes. But the extent to which it's not the case, even in the context, again, of the post-financial crisis world was surprising even to us. And just to add to that, even when like when we found this initial situation uh, and, and we were uh, surprised that it, it was not, we expected to find some type of the findings that, that we ended finding, but, but we were surprised. So we started expanding our scope and started to add uh, not only Marx, but also uh, Marxist authors, and even like we, we even stretch it to authors that are somehow inspired by Marx or right. have somehow uh, some type of connection with Marx to see if the numbers change and still the numbers are really low. So again, uh, if we look at um, 1,490 total yeah. required readings, you have only 14 Marxist readings. And from the 1,760 of recommended readings, you only have 17. Um, so the situation is really like, um, again, we expected, you know, to find that Marx was, was didn't have a prominent place um, in the discipline. But as but to look at these numbers and to look at these figures was was somehow a surprise. Yeah, I think there's one interesting part in your piece where you sort of just say it's like it would it would be as if people were taking you know courses in the history of um, English literature and avoiding Shakespeare. Um, you know, which is sort of just really, I think, casts the stakes of this. And of course, it's not a, a small fact in this as well, that you're dealing, again, as you said, with the top 10 elite colleges of the nation. Um, these, of course, are going to be the source of so many of the faculty that end up getting tenured downstream uh, from these top 10 programs. And that's going to be, a, a you know, a, a, a sort of a an intellectual cascade effect uh, down the food chain, so to speak, um, I mean, in that sense, your sort of article reminds me of sort of classic IR arguments like Stanley Hoffman's notion that uh, international relations is an American science. I think what's coming through very clearly here is that um, top level IR, at least in the United States, is a, is a very non-Marxist enterprise. Um, but importantly, in your article, you put it that... This is not really a situation that we should attribute to any particular intellectual failings on the part of Marx himself. Uh, you have four particular explanations as to why there is this crisis of oversight um, when it comes to Marxism and academia. Can you just talk us through these four factors? So just like um, I'll mention them and, and we can then uh, go into them yeah. uh, more specifically if you want. So the first one was uh, a certain guilt of association, uh, the association of Marx with the Soviet Union. Um, and especially, so so the argument more or less goes, uh, the Soviet Union is uh, almost one-on-one -on -one, uh, copy of what Marx said was applied in the Soviet Union. The Soviet yeah. Union failed it fall down. Therefore, there's no more room to Marx. Uh, so that's one. The other is, and, and it's related to, to this, is the, mm -hmm. the idea of the end of history triumphalism. So the end of the Cold War, the end of 
the Soviet Union, the end of the alternative, mo- the supposedly alternative model to capitalism and the triumph of capitalism that is mm-hmm. based, that is brought basically by by scholars who uh, come from a very conservative side and so on. And and as we argue also, um, the fact that uh, and that um, goes to to point three, uh, the fact that some of those uh, like Francis Fukuyama and so on were. Uh, students of Samuel Huntington, uh, there was a very strong voice um, regarding the conservative movement on academia and, and taking out academia from from politics. Um, mm-hmm. That's the third point: a certain uh, tendency or a certain association of trying to separate academia from from real politics, from political world, um, and the fear that happened in academia, some academic circles during the '60s in seeing students being radicalized and trying to change and trying to protest. So a turn off, let's separate um, this idea. Um, and, and someone Huntington was, was clearly one of those, those figures trying to uh, warn uh, the rest of the academic world that we should be careful what we teach to our students. They can become radicalized um, and so on. And mm-hmm. finally, also related this idea of, of scientific neutrality, yes. this idea that in the social science, we can conduct research uh, completely ignoring um, certain like normative aspects and um, and so on. So we can this idea that we can separate facts from values, um, and that we we should aspire to have a complete uh, neutrality and so on. And that's related to to a more broader point, which is the idea that uh, there's no more political project, or that there shouldn't be a political project in academia. Um, which I find it problematic in itself. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, I think that the, the positions, these positions that are hold, that are, are what we think that explains why Marx in many ways is abandoned, is a political position in itself. It's a political position that says we need to abandon uh, any normative project um, and just take to very narrow, narrow ways. Um, and just to like, as you were saying, you know, the, um, this is very much related to U.S. academia. Um, I don't, we don't know, I don't, we don't have the figures, no, no, we haven't done the analysis regarding what happens, happening, happens in the rest of the world. Right. Uh, but the Manchester movement and, and other movements across Europe seem that academia or some academics are trying to break ground and bring uh, Marx back in a much more systematic way. And, and let me just add that we, we chose the, the title of the article for a very deliberate reason, and that is the specter that haunts political science. Mm-hmm. Marx and Marxism, as we understand them, pose a very uncomfortable set of questions for political science. And and what it suggests that political scientists are not comfortable with, in large part because of the reasons that Sebastian previously explained, is that first of all, our locus of scholarly interest should not be either primarily or at least solely on the discipline and contributing to political science as an academic discipline. Rather is, of course, challenging us to think about our social contributions. And he is challenging us not just then to interpret the world, of course, famous quote, but to change it. To change it, too. And and political science is not, as we're all, I think, well aware, is not comfortable, on the one hand, with moving beyond the ivory tower. I mean, there's a very strong internal dynamic of contributing to internal debates for their own sake instead of thinking about how scholarship can interact, hopefully in positive ways with the real world. And and also, again, this notion that we should have some sort of social role, that theory has a purpose, mm-hmm. right? Again, in with the language of scientific neutrality, 
the idea that you know, we're sort of copying the model of the natural sciences and so forth, this removes us from that kind of political project. And, and this is a large part of the reason, again, why Marx and Marxism seem to make many political scientists and political science as a structure and a discipline very uncomfortable. And for that reason, why he and Marxist authors are not more widely read. Yeah, it strikes me as you're talking there that um, this value neutral political science trope has a very particular political economy in its own right. That is, of course, the economy of publish or perish, which uh, sort of structures academics away from precisely that attitude that you're talking about, uh, where they would uh, be open minded to um, their responsibility of dealing and engaging with the outside world. And I do want to, in a moment or two, ask you a question about, of course, the fact that there are people in IR theory and in political science more broadly who are, of course, openly critical scholars. And we have to ask the question, perhaps, uh, of their attitude towards Marxism as well. But just before we get to that question, um, I do want to sort of go back over uh, one or two of these factors that you mentioned, which um, I wanted to kind of like just maybe get you to lay out some opinions about. Because uh, last episode, um, I've interviewed Brian Skoulas, who had uh, with a co-author written a very interesting piece on uh, sort of Marxist pedagogy. And um, he actually sort of takes a similar position to yourselves um, on the question of the USSR and its relationship with Marxism. And I guess it's just a question I sort of, I'm, I'm curious about. I'm, I'm uh, interested in uh, obviously this debate right now, or non-debate perhaps as it might be put, um, that we are in the anniversary moment of the 100 years of the October Revolution in Russia. And obviously there's academics out there, shall we say public intellectuals, Slavoj Žižek, Jody Dean. They would kind of have us hesitate a little bit before making this move that you seem to be comfortable making, which is that, you know, we need to separate the USSR from its Marxist credentials. Now they don't, I think, for a minute discount the atrocities that were carried out in the name of Marxism in uh, places like the USSR, but nor are they so quick to move towards this idea that Marxism and the USSR have only this superficial relationship. So I just wondered, do you have a particular position here? Um, are you fully comfortable, um, say, outside of the classroom, where maybe this is a little harder to say? I know Brian was sort of explaining that, you know, he's in kind of Miami, where there's this sort of visceral anti-Marxism uh, obviously particularly shaped by the fact that many of his students have connections to families that have fled from Cuba. And, and that obviously makes sense. But, um, you know, seeing as we are discussing the academic enterprise here, how do you approach that question with honesty in the classroom? And, and let me, it's, it's an interesting question. Let, let me let me first back up a minute and, and just say something to continue the previous conversation since you mentioned the issue of kind of the material conditions of the discipline and, and how they affect what gets produced and, and so forth. And it is very important to point out that in a time in which the job market is, of course, very difficult and there are all sorts of pressures facing people going through graduate school, there's a very deliberate socialization process as well, that people are afraid. Right? I mean, it's a very large disciplining effect in terms of what people are pushed to or socialized into pursuing. And that, of course, has the effect of 
if they are interested in those questions in the first place, of turning their attention elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Because they learn very quickly, either because they're told or because it's implicit, or because they gather as much by looking at what's published in the journals and what gets presented at conferences, that there's not really a place for them. Right. And it has a very important and powerful structuring effect in terms of pushing people in certain directions. And where I think we'll, we'll go with this conversation uh, somewhat later is to talk about ways to break that cycle to create more space so that people you know, can engage in these sorts of projects and, and still publish and, and have, quote unquote, successful academic careers. So one thing just to add what, what just Kevin said before we enter into this uh, uh, question of the Soviet Union and Marx. Sure. Um, at the end of the day, I think that uh, part of our, our role in academia, or the role of academia, should be like, uh, I think that there's a confusion. Uh, people confuse several times of uh, academics getting engaged with real world politics. Uh, they confuse that which, uh, with policy recommendations. Um, and I think that that's also a mistake. I think that we should be part of a broader, of broader conversations regarding the material conditions in which the discipline works, but also the society we live in, the countries that we live in, the world that we live in. And we should contribute um, to the general public. Um, but as Kevin was saying, the structure in which academia, especially the U.S. academia, is very much takes you away from that. And, and there are risks that are uh, people who uh, want to engage in, in broader community with a broader with a general public, with a broader public to communicate ideas in, in, in to other areas. Um, the cost, it, there's a, definitely a, a time cost, you know, um, writing blogs, writing op-ed and so on, which I think they're fundamental. It, it takes time and it takes an effort and so on. And there's no reward uh, in the academic structure uh, yeah. for that. Contrary, um, oftentimes you will, you will hear people say, like, why are you wasting your time? Um, even they will tell you, like, why are, why are we wasting our time? And quote, unquote, the wasting, of course, doing this interview when we should uh, try to think what's the next paper to publish. Um, <laughs> yeah. the, access, the access of the general public to, um, to academic writing of their own, it's, it's quite limited. Um, and I think that that's problematic in itself and coming from Latin America, at least, uh, many years ago, Latin American academia, academia was very much involved with, with the things that were going on around, uh, and there was not that, uh, big walls and so on. And, and, and yes, there is problems when, when, when there's no separation and so on. Um, but the complete isolation, I think it's extremely problematic. Um, so, so those things that are, that need to be, we need to be aware of that at least. Um, so going into the Soviet Union mm-hmm. question. Um, so first of all, we, we don't argue that there's no connection whatsoever between Marx and Marx's ideas with the Soviet Union. Um, at the end of the day, Lenin was very much inspired by, by Marx's writings and so on um, in order to develop the revolution. But there's an interpretation that Lenin does of some of uh, Marx's writings in order to develop these ideas, uh, his ideas and so on. And that moves forward, um, et cetera. Like I personally am far from being an expert in the Soviet Union um, and so on. Right. Um, but there are, there are several authors uh, that make the case that what developed in the Soviet Union compared to many of the writings of Marx and how Marx evolved and so on, there's no, uh, it's not a, a, um, that Marx gave, gave a blueprint that was developed and taken through, so, through the Soviet Union and so on. Rather, and if we think, like, rather, Marx was a, a scholar of capitalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was his main project. That was, was his topic. That what he studied. Um, and um, 
as it said, you know, uh, so long as capitalism is alive, Marx should be alive, regardless of our political position. Mm-hmm. We are talking here of the most important or one of the most important scholars analyzing capitalism. Um, so beyond the disconnection between or, or, or certain you know, connections and disconnections between Marxist thought and the Soviet Union, I think that it's much easier to associate Marx with capitalism than with uh, the Soviet system. And that, let me say that I, I'll approach the question in a different way from a, a practical perspective of what it was like for me in college to start getting involved in activist groups in a serious way. And what I found was that there were what I regarded as being quite esoteric debates going on mm-hmm. about the Soviet Union and, and how to characterize certain facets of the Soviet regime vis-a-vis other facets of Marxist theory. And as someone who was looking to become politically involved at that time, I found those debates, once again, rather esoteric and quite off-putting. I certainly did not see the Soviet Union as a political or economic model that I was interested in emulating in any way. Uh, And so I, I think there has been, if on the one hand, the mainstream has wanted to, of course, tar Marxism for its association with the Soviet Union, there have also been thinkers within the Marxist tradition in the West and elsewhere who've also maintained a set of linkages to the Soviet Union that I find troubling as well. And I'm not referring specifically to the thinkers that you mentioned. Uh, But nonetheless, I I don't find, even while we may look back, and and again, I'm not a specialist in the the Russian Revolution or the Soviet Union in general, um, we may find, of course, many things that are inspiring about the October Revolution and so forth. But my, my own process of political consciousness raising, so to speak, uh, in that regard was nurtured more by reading thinkers like Emma Goldman and so forth, who were warning very early about the authoritarian tendencies uh, that the Soviet revolution was was taking, especially with the crushing of the Kronstadt rebellion. Yeah. And so I, I think it's, it's very salutary now that that sort of linkage in broader U.S. politics seems to have been broken to a significant extent. There was a candidate, of course, who was elected to the Virginia, I guess, state. That's uh, right. Yeah. As a delegate who was running under the DSA, right? The DSA, the in the Bernie, the Bernie Sanders uh, crowd, and who was tarred by by his opponent as being a Stalinist or something. And and this person, <laughs> as I recall, the opponent sent out something like twelve thousand flyers to people in the community juxtaposing images of this candidate, whose name I don't recall, with, I believe it was Mao and Stalin. And that strategy, that kind of scare tactic didn't seem to work. So I I think we are at a more positive point where we can think about how, of course, Marx and Marxism fed into the Soviet Union in different ways, but the tradition is much broader than that. And I'm, I'm much more interested for political and other reasons in thinking about how other sorts of thinkers or how movements they're happening now. We could look at things happening with um, in Kurdish regions or student movements in Latin America and other parts of the world are engaging with Marx in a much more dynamic and, and I think interesting way. Mm. More than like just to add to that, uh, sure. um, Marxism or, or Mar- at least Marx is not a complete, it's not a coherent and complete doctrine. Uh, I think that Marx would be extremely annoyed. And he had a, a very interesting way of putting uh, his annoyance into words. Uh, if he would see people reading his work and trying to follow one-on-one what he wrote, 
I think that uh, Marxism is, is, is constantly evolving. He himself evolved in his thought and so on. Yeah. So when you associate Marxism to any regime or any uh, uh, part of the world and say, okay, this is what it is and, and, and end of story, um, I think that, it, that, that leads to, to uh, at least to an incomplete reading of, of Marx, of Marxist, of Marxist thought, but, but also of Marxist spirit. Yes, uh, that's a great point. Uh, um, that he always uh, established that, okay, I'm, I'm analyzing this situation in this historical context, in these things, and, and he went through there. Um, so our role, not only with Marx, but with many other authors, is okay, to, to see how, how those processes evolve. Um, so, and, and even uh, not clearly Marxist authors have also made the case that uh, the whole body of Marx works uh, has, it's not, we cannot put it in a complete coherent body in which we say, okay, there's one Marx and all the others are uh, here and there. <laughs> Mar Marx called famously, of course, for a ruthless criticism of everything existing. And yeah. we have to assume that that, that can apply also to Marx both Marx himself and, and mm -hmm. people in the Marxist tradition. Yeah, that's a great point. Actually, so in the, maybe in precisely that question of the, the Marxist spirit, um, another one of the variables uh, that you list as a factor in uh, the sort of narrowing of our political science enterprise here is this cult, maybe my words, not yours, but uh, this cult of scientific neutrality. Um, you cite some interesting data here from the TRIP project. Uh, of course, that comes out of the College of William and Mary. It's a survey of IR scholarship that is carried out periodically. And that notes that Marxism has indeed been losing ground since the 1980s, but emerging in its place uh, as the sort of contender number one to the throne that's usually occupied by realism and liberalism is this theory of constructivism, uh, which uh, you know, I think the critics of critiques of constructivism are already uh, quite well established in some ways, but maybe not always put in conversation with Marxism. So as you say, it's not just any old constructivism that has emerged in the discipline. It's a, it's a thin, value-free, positivist strand. So I think number one, maybe just for less familiar listeners, can you give us a quick primer or a hot take on what constructivism in IR is or what it's trying to do? But then more specifically, this kind of bait and switch that's going on in this question of so-called scientific neutrality. Sure. And uh, I think we're both okay with the use of the word cult. Of, of okay. <laughs> Uh, so, so constructivism, something very interesting happens with constructivism, of course, which is that if there had for a very long time been a, a real or imagined debate between realism and liberalism in international relations theory, with Marxism also occupying a significant position, but never hegemonic, of course, at least in the United States, constructivism does arise quite quickly to, to stir up uh, the discipline a bit. And uh, the first main work that, that does this is, is by Nicholas Onev, who proposes a fairly ontologically radical constructivism, which calls for us to take very seriously the role of language, the role of ideas, the role of identities in constituting reality. But that version of constructivism, which is the so-called thick constructivism, while it still exists, it loses out quite quickly in the discipline. And in fact, my impression is that Onif is not very widely read, aside from people who operate in that area. Yeah. Even yeah. though, again, he is the, the one 
at least as far as, as my understanding of the story goes, who's responsible for really bringing this into international relations, right? The Alexander Went version wins out. Uh, and this is a much thinner constructivism, constructivism, of course, which still focuses on these issues of identities, um, language, and, and so forth, but does so in a way that ends up turning them essentially into independent variables that can be incorporated into traditional mainstream positivist political science analysis. So, see, it is quite remarkable how quickly constructivism rises, but the way that constructivism rises is, of course, by playing the existing game within the discipline and hewing to these traditional disciplinary norms surrounding what political science, quote unquote, really is. So from the side of uh, the call to scientific neutrality, um, I think it's, it has to do with, with the, uh, a lot of what we were talking before on the, the actual politics of academia. Mm -hmm. um, and this idea of trying to you know, present ourselves as detached observers that uh, are not contaminated with any normative elements be between other things because um, social reality is extremely complex um, and we want to simplify it. Uh, and try to analyze it and so on. Um, and sometimes that simplification means that, you know, we want to get out of, of the messy areas and the messy areas generally uh, are politics. Um, so, uh, and, and I think that, that um, I think that in many ways, also, so part of it, it's, it's an ideological position on trying to present my ideas in ways that cannot be necessarily um, criticized for being tarred by, by certain normative assumptions. So, so I said, okay, you know, I, I, I just collect data and I run whatever regressions or models I do. Um, and that's, that's facts and so on. And it has a, a very strong value at the end of the day. It's very important to do that, uh, especially now in the context of fake news and so on, uh, that we sustain our arguments in strong theories and, 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 and um, strong empiricals um, and so on. The problem is that we, we still are working in a, a complex world. And if we completely eliminate that complexity, then our possibility of understanding it and changing it, of course, becomes uh, quite limited. Um, so, so um, and, and again, and, and even when, when we collected that, the, the, our choices of what to observe, uh, how we collect data and so on, uh, are very much driven by a series of normative assumptions. Uh, that we try to ignore, and and I'll go and I move out a little bit from political science, and I can sure. talk a little bit about the the area of criminology, for example. Uh, there's a very interesting book by uh, Khalid Mohammed. Um, I can't remember exactly the title, but it's, uh, I think it's the uh, criminalization of blackness and so on. Um, that he shows how, for example, crime statistics have been used historically in the U.S. as a way of criminalize blackness, um, but those stats are always presented in a very neutral way. Um, and so on. And I think that, that that's the problem when we try uh, this futile attempt of separate facts and values uh, and we don't address the normative elements in, and, and the decisions of collecting some type of data and ignoring other types of data and so on. And more important, in order to understand the reality that we are analyzing, we need to interpret that reality. Mm -hmm. And interpretation comes with the cost that we are influenced by our own normative assumptions. So we, we may be, do better if we accept that and you know, go through the process um, and so on. 
Um, so scientific neutrality for many, I think, in the discipline is a way of justifying certain positions without expressing them. For others, I think it's an honest concern of trying to uh, stick as much as possible uh, to empirics uh, rather than uh, opinion discussion, especially in the context that we're living, the reality that we are now, in which uh, um, everybody is attacked um, with, with fake ideas or, or, or fake right. news. Yeah, and that's a really good point. I think, you know, even as you're saying, I think there, the, the, the good faith uh, efforts that constructivism puts forward um, are problematic simply because I think that they forget to ask the question about how power creeps into these various empirical selection uh, criteria that are that are used. Um, you know, what 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 we're focusing on as existing and what gets left off the analysis. But one group of people that, you know, we count on and turn to regularly to help us bring those questions back into the conversation are, of course, critical theorists. And I think one fascinating part of your piece is where you even turn your focus to these scholars and note that Marxism isn't doing very well even amongst them. Um, and uh, I don't necessarily want to put words in your mouth, but I get the sense that you're concerned that a certain set of assumptions have crept in here too, possibly emerging with Western post-colonial theory, which has effectively sort of gazed upon someone like Marx as effectively an artifact of a European colonial project or a paternalistic Western uh, or Eurocentric uh, teleology, if you will. Um, now, you don't pull your punches here. You cite Kevin Anderson's critique, uh, which even goes after, you know, fairly foundational post-colonial thinkers like Edward Said. So I, I kind of want to um, invite you here to hold the listener's hand a little bit because there's graduate students that spend a lot of time reading people like Said and, you know, having put all that time in there, you know, to start criticizing this, uh, you know, you're taking on some 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 hallowed figures in the left-wing firmament today. So um, what's going on with this post-colonial uh, relationship to Marxism here? And why do you guys think this critique is so misguided when it comes to thinking about Marx? Yeah, I should say that I, at least speaking personally, I have a tremendous amount of respect for the post-colonial tradition and a lot of the scholarship that it's produced. Uh, the drive to diversify the canon, so to speak, to, mm -hmm. to push people to read non-Western sources, I, I think is, is very healthy. And much of that work has, has been very important in my own intellectual development as well. On the other hand, I should say that, in fact, it is precisely this issue, which at least again for me personally, drove a lot of my interest in this question of wanting to understand Marx's place in the discipline. Because mm -hmm. Coming from our political perspective, of course, we don't really expect much from the mainstream in the first place. So to find that the mainstream is neglecting Marx, even though the degree of that neglect is shocking, quite frankly, <laughs> the overall idea is, is not. What is more disappointing anyway is precisely what you're getting at with this question, which is why even among critical political scientists, there, there's such a lack of engagement as well. And, and so... You know, what ends up developing in political science is that on the one hand, we have this in international relations, especially we have the rise of constructivism, as we discussed earlier. And, and part of why that was able to become so successful, once again, is because it bought into certain standard political science assumptions and also didn't have a clear political project. And rising 
at a similar time with post-colonialism is again a political project that is that well that is a political project so to speak it does involve diversifying who's being read and, and challenging certain dominant assumptions and discipline which i think are very helpful tendencies but as part of that critique what ends up occurring very commonly is that you get a, a kind of fetishism for the particular and the specific and a notion that anybody who arises out of a particular context, so focusing on Western Europe in this case, is guilty of a similar set of sins. So you'll find characterizations, we cite some of them within mm -hmm. the article itself, such as John Hobson's, uh, who has a title um, in one of his, in his book, The Eurocentric Conception of World Politics, which again, I, I find to be a very useful text in a lot of ways. Nonetheless, he has a, a title or a chapter in this book entitled Eurocentric Imperialism, Liberalism and Marxism, and then he gives the years. So you very commonly get this sort of equating of Marxism as just another Western ideology that's equally complicit with all of the other Enlightenment ways of thinking and imperialism, colonialism, slavery, and so forth. And obviously, we find that very problematic for a lot of reasons. One of them, of course, is that while Marx had his own ethnocentric biases, as, as does anyone, uh, and was certainly a product of his own place and time, he nonetheless, he nonetheless made very sustained efforts to seriously engage with the quote-unquote non-Western world and to do so in a nuanced way. Now, he made comments that are seized upon by critics, uh, for example, his discussion of Oriental despotism, certainly one of them. Uh, but even here, there's an evolution in his thinking over time. We don't want to suggest that, of course, he was perfectly sensitive to cultural difference, for example, and issues of race and gender. But for a thinker of his time, he, in fact, was quite ahead of his time in those matters. His writings on the U.S. Civil War surrounding the relationship between race in the U.S., um, and the, the economic structure and how these had to be addressed in a, in a joint fashion is in fact something, of course, that we're still wrestling with to this day. So the, the overall critique that, that we make, or at least this is the way I think of it, is that much of what happens under the, the guise of post-colonial scholarship ends up developing, again, a gaze that's very much focused on the particular, uh, what is unique to the formerly colonized or even currently colonized world um, and that loses out on any notion of how certain universal dynamics could cut across those. So if you start talking about categories like social class that may apply across borders in different ways, that's often critiqued then as a form of epistemological violence that's being committed on behalf of a Western construct. And this, of course, goes very much in line to, to open another uh, controversial bag with yeah. the rise of identity politics in the United States. Again, I don't want to suggest by any stretch of the imagination that the rise of social movements in the U.S. based on particularity is a bad thing, and many positive things have come out of that. But as Joseph Swartz, the, the political theorist, notes, at some point we have to start building bridges across those differences or else we're not going to be able to build a large enough movement movement in order to affect real structural change. Uh -huh. Yeah, and to add to that, I think that uh, two points, two interesting points have come into my mind. So one is uh, recent efforts by by African American uh, scholars uh, to try to bring back Marx into the African American movements, and and the most prominent that comes into my mind is uh, Kianga Yamada Taylor yeah. uh, in the book on uh, from uh, Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. Uh, she makes a very very strong case on how important Marx was 
and should be uh, for the uh, um, African-American movement here in the U.S. Um, so that, that's one point, the, the importance in, in, in many ways, what Kevin was saying. So the, the rise of these identity politics is extremely important and very positive in, in many ways. But we need to you know, address the material conditions that affect different groups of people uh, based on, 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 on race or, or country origin, ethnicity, sexual orientation, and so on. And, and when we ignore the material conditions that affect those definitions, then we're losing a big chunk of, of what the problem is. Um, so that's one point that, that comes to my mind. And the other regarding the post-colonial world, and it's one of the points that we try to make in our article is like, well, let's look at the world outside of the US. And one of the things that we see across the board historically is that many of the most radical political activists, movements, and scholars have very much been inspired by Marx. Um, mm-hmm. We talk about the Jose Carlos Mariategui, for example, which is the, I would say, um, and I don't think I'm wrong, the most prominent Marxist scholar in Latin America uh, who inspired many people, but between others, he very much inspired Che Guevara and, 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 and Fidel and so on and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and unfortunately, Mariategui is not a very well-known figure right. uh, academic circles or in general circles, there's a, uh, um, in, I think in the preface of, of the anthology of Mariategui, uh, they quote uh, uh, the article when Mariategui dies and, and uh, the one that he's writing says one of the brightest figures in the world has recently died and that's completely ignored in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, so, um, so that's another point like that, that we were trying to make. Okay, so let's, look, let's go. If, if Marx is a Eurocentric that has nothing to say yeah. to the colonial world, okay, let's go out and look at the colonial world. And then what we see is that Marx, even with some shortcomings and so on, and we are not arguing here that Marx by any way has the answers to all, to everything or to all the problems, but it did inspire, inspire. There's no Fanon without Marx. There's no Mariategui without Marx. There's no right. Amir Cabral without Marx. Um, so it seems to me that, that he is speaking to, uh, to, to colonize people who are fighting oppression um, and so on. Um, so I think that, that that's important. And one point that I, I honestly don't have an answer, but I keep asking myself. So sure. and, and this is very much anecdotal. Um, so I've been in conferences which I go and listen to some critical scholars and some of them, they make a very strong effort to always bring Marx in a critical, in a, in a critical way, always trying to position themselves as I'm not a Marxist. I reject Marx or something like that. And I always ask myself, Having so many liberal, think, classic liberal thinkers to argue uh, regarding their racism, their support of imperialism, and so on, uh, why pick a fight for with Marx that was not yeah. a, a, a supporter of, of British imperialism, that had no uh, stocks in, in, in the uh, slave companies, and so on? Uh, um, and I don't have an answer. Um, yeah. I may try to think of an answer, but I don't have a clear answer. But I ask myself why that's that's the case. Um, so and, and it may be ethnocentricity. It's maybe that the same thing that we are complaining or that some are complaining regarding Marx that he was ethnocentric um, leads to some people to you know, don't expand their horizons and, and look to the to the so-called post-colonial world to see what the authors there mm-hmm. have. Yeah. So so there's a, a very interesting irony at play here, which yeah. is one. And there's this post-colonial, not in all cases, but in many cases, as Sebastian was saying, a rejection of Marx or the use of Marx as a, as a rhetorical punching bag. Well, at the very same time, people engaged in concrete material struggles on the ground in a post-colonial context 
have so very often turned to Marx as a source of inspiration. That doesn't mean, of course, that they've used him in a one-to-one way, that they've just blindly applied his ideas. That certainly is not what Mariategui did. That certainly is not what Cabral did either. Um, but they found Marx to be an inspiring figure. And so we have to ask ourselves the question of why there's a class of post-colonial intellectuals who seem so invested in critiquing Marx, whereas people on the ground engaged in these very real struggles have, just as often it seems, found Marx to be an inspiration. And, and to put a, uh, to go into some specifics here of, of what Sebastian was talking about. Please do, yeah. So why the fact that Marx is lumped in, for example, with classical liberal thinkers is, is so problematic is that as Kevin Anderson cites in his book, Marx was, in his recounting, the very first major Western intellectual in order to support independence for India, right? That's, that's something that's part of the record. Again, the, the idea is not that Marx had a perfectly nuanced view of Indian society and culture, uh, or that he didn't make statements that we may find problematic in different ways, but nonetheless, to equate him with others Stuart Mill and so forth, who were directly materially profiting from colonialism through their own investments in the British East India Company and so forth, that's a remarkable uh, juxtaposition that doesn't deserve to be made, quite frankly. Marx, as we cite in the article, condemned colonial violence on many occasions um, and linked it, of course, to his understanding of, of global capitalism. Right? And so what's, what ends up being problematic about all this in a larger sense, beyond just how Marx is is interpreted you know, for, for his own sake, is that, of course, different post ways of thinking, so post-structuralism, post-colonialism, and post-modernism, then become, for many, the dominant new critical wing in political science. Not that it's hegemonic by any stretch of the imagination, but certainly it seems much more, seems to have a much larger spot at the table than does Marxism today. And one of the reasons for that, it, it's hard to avoid, is the fact that precisely it's not really clear what political project arises out of them, aside from, of course, deconstructing, which is a wonderful thing to do, but it's not necessarily a positive political project. right? And whereas Marx, once again, frightens political science in a very fundamental way because he's calling on scholars to have a direct social role yeah. and that they need to reflect on the politics of their own material circumstances and the economic system in which they're embedded. What post-colonialism has often become, once again, is a sort of fetishization of the particular, right? So focusing on different sorts of local context, romanticizing even pre-colonial societies, which not to support, of course, the way that colonialism uprooted them, but nonetheless, there were many problematic aspects of them. And that's been a common move that's been made in much of post-colonial thought. And, and that idea then of, once again, um, you know, sort of not having a clear political program that challenges power structures, aside from saying that they want to diversify the canon, for example, that has to be understood as part of post-colonialism's rise. What, what makes this even more interesting, at least from my perspective, is that that particular view of a Eurocentric Marx is then shared by many mainstream thinkers in political science as well. Mm. So as a reason then not to have to engage with Marx. So we cite several undergraduate textbooks in the article uh, which make precisely that point. They say very openly that they are not um, they're not engaging with Marx precisely because he has nothing, for example, to say to developing countries. Right. This and th this is an extremely problematic piece right. of the record once again. Right. And it's very interesting how then you have a critical wing of political science coalescing with the mainstream over this shared political project, which seems to be not to bring Marx into the discipline. 
and this goes back to a point also that, that we already talked, like saying that Marx has nothing to say to the developing world why, while, while many intellectuals in the developing world who unfortunately are ignored are still engaging with Marx, disagreeing with Marx in many ways, mm-hmm. uh, but having a thorough conversation with Marx because it inspires them, it gives them ideas, it allows them to uh, uh, develop a greater, greater understanding of their own societies and so on. Um, so making the case that, okay, Marx has nothing to say to the uh, developing world, the, the post-colonial world, while people from those places, uh, and I come from Latin America, um, when I was in college there, uh, it was like, uh, it, it was it, it, very difficult to comprehend that you go through college in Latin America without studying Marx. Um, so, so, I was, so I always wonder like how you can make a criticism and, and you don't look what, like, unless we who are coming from, from the non-Western world um, are completely wrong. And, and, and we shouldn't be reading Marx because it actually may have nothing to say to us. Well, uh, I don't think that's the case. And I think that that's, that's a truly problematic. Yeah. And, and just to clarify again, ours is not a wholesale rejection, of course, or critique of, of right. the post-colonial intellectual movement. Again, it's been extremely valuable in many ways, but on this particular issue, not everybody involved, of course, but there's been a certain move which has made post-colonialism more viable vis-a-vis the rest of, of the discipline. Whether that was a purposeful decision or not, I don't know. Uh, but again, the sort of jettisoning, uh, the jettisoning of thinking about Marx's intersection with post-colonialism and the political project that arises out of that, I think it would be hard to argue has not contributed to post-colonialism's rise as, say, perhaps today, a larger intellectual movement within U.S. political science than is Marxism itself. So I actually kind of, um, just based on what you guys have been saying now, um, I'm tempted to sort of try to jump into the weeds a little bit here and get a little geeky. Um, these scholars that you've mentioned specifically, Cabral and Maratigay, um, they are not uh, wholesale uh, uh, proponents of, of, of some kind of Marxist schematic uh, that's you know that, that that should be mechanistically applied to uh, to to non-Western sites. Um, they are aware that there are specificities on the ground, particularities in the political situation um, that might, for example, make the idea of uh, you know a politics of working class consciousness a bit you know ridiculous. Um, so. On the one hand, it's clear from your piece that they are kind of grounding themselves in a in a Marxist critique of capitalism, globalization, etc. But on the other hand, they're aware that some of the concepts, some of the terminologies, uh, the idea of a of a movement of history through various stages, just simply don't apply if you want to be a Marxist in the developing South, so to speak. So, to what extent then do you find this? adopted or adapt, uh, adaptable Marxism to be a Marxism in that sense? You know, to, to, to what extent do you find these scholars to be kind of even self-conscious of themselves as Marxists? Or um, to what extent are they kind of trying to innovate uh, their own kind of radical theory? I think that uh, just to, to begin to try to, to develop an answer to your question, uh, yeah. two things that are, that are, that we 
want to mention. So one is that Kevin Anderson uh, clearly shows how Marx's uh, theory of history evolves, especially when he goes to London and he starts working for the New York Tribune and he starts engaging with the colonial reality uh, and he starts uh, making some changes uh, in the way he sees the uh, historic the, the evolution of history uh, into a much more complex one, not necessarily the <clears throat> sorry the linear progressive way that he describes in the Communist Manifesto um, and in other places was very much centered in Europe. So he sees that there are other ways, there are other avenues, uh, and so on. Um, the second point is, is and, and I'll address the, the case of Mariategui, so, uh, which I think it's, there, there are many others who, who go through the same process. So Mariategui def- definitely applies a Marxist analysis to the reality of Peru, and from there to the reality of Latin America. Uh, um, and I think that Marx would, would have been very happy, maybe he would have disagreed in some point, but he would mm-hmm. have been happy with Mariategui's analysis and so on. And Mariategui, one of the things he understands is that one of the main concerns in Peru is the land problem, and the land problem is very much attached to the problem of the indigenous populations there. Um, and, and because of different historical reasons and context, Mariategui starts to develop this idea that actually because of the lack of a bourgeois, national bourgeoisie and the lack of a, an industrial capitalism in Peru, you don't have a strong working class. But the revolutionary element in the Peruvian society is actually the indigenous element and the peasantry element, uh, which certain writings of Marx or, or Marx himself would may have disagreed in the case of Europe. Uh, but that's the reality in which Mariategui uh, arrives. And he sees that, that, that peasantry class as the universal class in, the same, in a very similar way in which... Um, in which Marx saw the proletariat. Um, so, so, um, so those adaptations, the learning process and so on, um, I think that they're, they're important and show to a certain dynamic um, in Marxist uh, thought that allows for these authors to use a certain framework to interpret their reality and come to conclusions that are, uh, in broader terms, very much similar to Marx, in which there are certain switches to, to the actors and to the reality and the context and the historical context that they're anal- analyzing. There were thinkers, of course, in these contexts, and still are, who sought to apply a European Marxist story in a very mechanistic way to their own societies. But th- those, of course, aren't the most interesting cases. Uh, the ones we've seen to highlight are people who sought to situate a Marxist understanding within their own context and, and reach different sorts of conclusions. Um, and again, some of those may have been things that if Marx had been alive during this period, would have agreed with or would have disagreed with. But our fundamental point is that these authors, at least for themselves, they understand that they are operating, especially in Mariategui's case, somewhat less in Cabral's case, in the Marxist tradition. And at the very least, they find Marx useful for understanding their own context. And again, if that's the case, and we have this rather large, just not just looking at these two, but in a much longer historical timeline and thinking about today as well, we have so many thinkers throughout the quote-unquote global south, quote-unquote developing world, and so forth, who've engaged fruitfully with Marx, made modifications to the tradition, made it a more heterogeneous tradition and so forth, then it's incumbent upon us, if we're interested in understanding the post-colonial world, that we need to understand that engagement as well. So um, that, I think, really is a great uh, overview that you've presented to listeners in the last uh, little while uh, of your piece and some of the challenges and uh, curiosities that it, um, you know, that, that motivated. Um, but maybe a sort of a final question here, uh, we can just sort of talk about the stakes of your piece 
moving forward for the discipline, maybe also uh, where you'd maybe want to go here with some future research. Although I know that's kind of a cliche question. I'm actually genuinely interested what you guys are up to next. But um, I think one comment, maybe a throwaway comment in your piece, um, because I didn't necessarily see you develop it beyond the introduction, but you know, that, that objections to Marx today to sort of bring us back to the discipline um, do seem to have this kind of commensurability with neoliberal ideological commitments, more so maybe even than the scientific desire to understand the world around us. So um, equally, I think you're very clear uh, that um, part of the academic enterprise should be to have a, an outwards away from the university, uh, an outwards commitment to to politics, maybe even to revolutionary consciousness, um, or at least that that should be okay. And um, I guess I just sort of curious what we as academics and scholars can start to do um, to bring back a focus on this orientation. Um, we are, of course, in a higher education context where we uh, seem to be encouraged not to look outwards. We are encouraged to focus on our publishing and uh, our syllabi, as you've amply demonstrated, uh, don't really produce the kind of thinking that challenges neoliberalism. Um, and even amongst our critical scholar friends, um, we see this kind of strong aversion to thinking in terms of Marx and Marxism. So where do we go from here? Um, that's a very good question. <laughs> um, I think that, that there, there are several avenues that uh, we can talk to. Um, and, and I'll start by, by, by addressing academia uh, in, in a very specific way. Um, so if the goal of academia, inside academia, is to contribute to the discipline and so on, but also from an education perspective, is to develop uh, broader intellectual minds. Um, and we are completely ignoring the most thorough critic of capitalism, regardless of our ideological position. I'm, I'm, I want to make a statement from, from a pedagogic position or from right. an intellectual position. Um, you know, it's it's like... Uh, um, as um, as Tucker says in, in his preface to the to the uh, to the reader to the Marx Engels reader, uh, not being a, a well acquainted with Marx thought uh, means that you don't have the and I'm paraphrasing here you don't have the necessary tools to engage in a uh, intelligent conversation about the world we live in, mm-hmm. um, and if we go by what we see in the syllabi that we analyzed, um, then we are saying that uh, the most prominent intellectual figures in political science cannot engage, if we follow Tucker line by line, they cannot engage in an intelligent conversation about the world we live in. Um, which, so, so I think that, that from that, only from that perspective, I think that's problematic. So we need to start bringing Marx uh, back in, into the syllabi uh, and into our classrooms. Yeah, and I I would say here that, again, even from a mainstream perspective, so forget about the political project and and any political values one may have related to Marxism related to these questions. But if if we have an ambition as a discipline to understand 
global politics, global political economy, and so forth, then we have to engage with Marx. There's, there's no question about that. And so what's clearly needed then is a movement that calls for more pluralism in terms of what gets read in political science. And I don't think that has to be confined to Marx. We could go through other classical thinkers, um, contemporary thinkers as well, who are extremely foundational, but who simply aren't read or who are read in a very caricatured way as, mm -hmm. as the case with Marx. Something that I've noticed from engaging with students who are majoring in economics, business administration, and, and similar such fields, is that they often have a very thin grasp even of their own neoclassical heroes, or, or the ones that, that belong to their disciplines anyway. Right. So they tend not to have actually read anything by Adam Smith, by Ricardo, forget about Keynes or someone else. And so it's it's clear then that again Marx is particularly salient in, in the in the sense that you know he's the kind of primary theorist so to speak of capitalism and early theorists of globalization of class and so forth. But there's clearly more pluralism needed in a broader sense to get people reading foundational works and theoretical works that take us beyond just the kind of empirical political science that has in many ways become hegemonic in recent years. In terms of where else to take that, so, so again, there are movements pushing for such things in the United Kingdom, for example, surrounding economics. And, and again, I find it remarkable that a discipline such as economics could actually be somewhat ahead of political science in terms of right. social surrounding these questions, at least in certain places and in certain contexts. Um, I, I think we all have a responsibility to think about how we want to live out these values in our own individual situations and contexts in terms of what struggles we engage in locally, whether that's on campus, in our community, in our profession as well. One thing I've always been uh, somewhat, maybe I, I want to even say surprised by, although not much surprises me these days, is that if you look at the way the professional associations are structured, we supposedly all believe in democracy. And maybe I, sh I shouldn't say these sorts of things publicly, uh, but they're, they're extremely undemocratic, right? I mean, democracy has been suggested as the master value of political science. And yet the very professional associations that under which political scientists tend to fall are, in fact, extremely, extremely undemocratic. Uh, what you tend to get is a pre-approved slate of candidates who the membership then has the opportunity to ratify or not. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That, that doesn't pass any definition of democracy, maybe beyond the Soviet Union, uh, that, that I'm familiar with. And it's just remarkable. So I, you know, I think it's very important that we think about how to take our values into the different spaces that we inhabit. And, and going along with that, and since we, we talked a bit previously about the job market and publications and so forth is that we clearly need to think about the institutional spaces around us and how to create more space within those institutions so that people can maintain their commitments and also be engaged in the sorts of activities that will allow them to get ahead professionally. So making sure that there's actually space for people who want to go to the American Political Science Association meeting and still engage in Marxist scholarship. There's the new political science group, for example, which is fantastic. Beyond that, as I'm, I'm sure you're aware, there's the the waters of APSA are are quite uh, are quite still, uh, 
and need to be, uh, you know, there needs to be some sort of shaking up going on as well. So I, I think Kevin, it, we'll I, get you, um, we're going to get you a Sapphire series in the ISA for, for Marxist scholarship. And it'll go up on the website, I'm sure. <laughs> and, yeah, so I, I don't have any particular answers to, to the question of how to go about doing that. But we do need to have a conversation about the material conditions that exist within political science and how to open them up so that people who are operating in the Marxist tradition or other critical or non-mainstream traditions as well are able to publish, do have space for their work at conferences and so forth so that we can engage with the discipline. And, and that's the kind of conversation that we want to drive going forward and that I, I hope we may start having at the upcoming APSA meeting. Yeah, and that, that leads to, to a further point that at least uh, for me it's uh, extremely important. And I think that uh, um, one of the problems that Marx posits to the discipline is how we engage with the world we live in and, and what are our uh, political projects. Um, and I think that the, the abandon of Marx is also a reflection of, of other, other tendencies. Um, for example, the tendency uh, of, you know, don't bring politics to the classroom. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Absolutely. Which I think is extremely problematic and danger. Uh, you have kids in college that go through four years through college experience that have never engaged in a thorough uh, political conversation. And when, and the very few instances that they do that, they do that with people who think like themselves. Um, and I think that, that, uh, and at least my experience teaching, teaching here has been that, um, I've seen, I see that as extremely important to people having political conversations, uh, between themselves and generally express, expressing political ideas with people that fundamentally disagree. Um, so, so I think that it also goes to those tendencies in trying to, you know, uh, sanitize, um, the academic environment, um, and so on. Uh, and then there are certain particularities, at least uh, my impression of what goes on here in the U S I think that there's a, a very narrow political rhetoric in the U S and political imagination in the U S. Um, so then when you have the candidate, uh, that Kevin was talking on, on Virginia, uh, that expresses some ideas that we would be definitely categorized as mainstream social democratic ideas uh, in the rest of the world. Uh, here I seen as radical and, and, and he has to go and explain that he's not Stalin, um, which for me, it's completely like crazy. Um, but when, 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 those, when those who supposedly are, are being educated in, in, the, in top places and in very important places or, 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 or in academia and, um, where the minds are formed, um, and they don't engage with anybody that it's outside of the mainstream and they don't like, you know, don't read Marx and so on. There's not much that you like, what can you expect? Right. So we keep narrowing the discourses. We keep narrowing the imagination and then the political possibilities become narrow. So a guy like Bernie Sanders, uh, who in, like who in Europe or in Latin America would be a classic center left candidate here, he becomes an extreme radical. Yeah. Uh, and that I think that has to do with with many factors, but one of them is the the narrowness of the political discourse, the narrowness of the political imagination. And I think that we academics are have to assume a responsibility in that we cannot keep working only for closed doors. We cannot keep with this situation of publishing only for the ten people that are in my area, and and we we have a conversation with between ten fifteen people. Yeah, um, we who, need to. We're all in top ten elite colleges. Yeah, are connected. 
at least yeah. some. So, so, so we need to find the avenues in which we engage with the general public, with engage with with other people, and but and not in, and 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 part of it, that engagement cannot be uh, a paternalistic engagement. It has to be a real engagement in which we learn from people who are outside academia and so on, and we communicate and we engage with dialogues uh, to that. So, so that's also something that we want to encourage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, guys, this has been great. I really uh, enjoyed listening to you um, talk about your piece. And uh, I want to thank you for coming on the show. I hope this is the beginning of a, of a much bigger conversation uh, within uh, political science and also within IR. Um, I wish you the best of luck with this piece and, and with, uh, hopefully, you know, hopefully this is not a topic you're just going to depart from. Um, I, I'd love to see this to be a, a conversation that we can continue uh, moving forward. Um, so thank you very much for, for having us. I think that it's, uh, what you're doing is extremely important. You know, we've been talking about how we should engage with the outside world of academia. And I think that you are doing a, a great service on that. Um, really want to thank you for, for having us here. Yeah, yes. it's a pleasure. Thank you for having us. It's it's been a pleasure, and and I think this this very podcast and the the Occupy IR theory IPE movement is is precisely part of that kind of institutional space that we need to be creating. Great, I'm glad you guys think so. Okay, uh, thanks so much for coming on, guys. That was great.